Welcome to Moving Target. I have a very important guest today, somebody that I've been trying to connect with outside of the articles he's been writing for TLAF for a while, doing outstanding work. Actually used to do foreign policy with Robert and Lakesh's video clips, but the articles were just having much more reach and impact. So I wanted to make sure he came back on today and hopefully we can do this more going forward in the future, maybe like a monthly concept because no one knows more in my opinion about what's going on on the ground and the insight than Robert in So he's here today to join me to talk about a very specific point of this larger conversation. Something that I find very interesting that we've been you know poking at for a long time as, as Robert has with his work as well. This is the, this is the, the, perception the awareness about how the corporate media predominantly in the west has seemingly if they ever ever you know really did care about it just cast aside their journalistic integrity and are just overwhelmingly focusing on narrative at all costs using stories that they can't vet information that's been shown to be false and just continuing to dive further and further into completely unvetted stories whether we're talking iran palestine ukraine syria it's just everywhere or covid19 for that matter but today well, who knows? Maybe we'll end up in COVID-19 discussion. It's hard to decouple these today, but we're planning to focus on foreign policy. So, Robert, thank you for joining me today. Looking forward to the conversation. Thank you for having me back on. It's been a long time, so I'm very happy to be here. It has. And, you know, and to to it's there's, as you know, there's so much going on and there's so many things we try to we want to do and talk about. But there's a lot of people that often reach. because your insight is very important, Robert. And I think that's why people are so thirsty to hear, you know, what you're seeing. And, you know, it really, it comes down just to exact kind of the crux of the point in contrast to what they're doing is just objectivity, right? Your willingness to, to care about the full picture and to not jump to conclusions based on preconceived perceptions, political or otherwise is important, but you know, what you're seeing in, well, first, I guess the evolution of what it was before. Now, let, let's start there. Do you think that there was ever really a time when they, to some degree, were trying to do their best in regard to the facts and, you know, or, or is it always kind of an illusion and then compare it to what we're dealing with right now? And or tell me if you even agree with what I'm saying. Well, I think for a long time, um, it, it's been awful, the reporting. And of course, everyone and every outlet and every journalist will have uh, their own biased positions. That, mm-hmm. that That's just the nature of what it is. I mean, uh, when I talk and when I, uh, you know, appear on shows or radios, uh, stations, or I write articles, I try and make it clear that, yes, of course, there is an element of bias. Um, but I try and back it up everything I say. With facts, I, I try to be fair. Um, I will look at the facts and then I will form the hypothesis based upon the information I have. And perhaps that might be slanted by my worldview. And I have to be conscious of that as a journalist and in order to be honest with people. I don't believe in there is one place where you have an, a non-biased uh, take, which you get 100 percent. Um, But I believe that the best journalism is done when people are honest about their positions on things and they are still able to go, okay, I can accept that this is perhaps the position that I hold, but here are their facts and this may actually oppose. I lost you there for a minute, Robert. I lost you for about five, 10 seconds. So just jump back a little bit. (laughs) No problem. Um, Yeah. Like it's just about, um, you know, if, if something runs against uh, what, perhaps I think, or I believe, then I have to report on that because that at the end of the day, um, uh, these are the facts and you can't quarrel with the facts. 
Um, but what we've seen in in mainstream Western media, corporate media, I mean, this is not just isolated to the West. Of course, this is all right. around the world. But the Western media has the most power and the most money behind it. And that's why I specifically focus on the Western media. Um, I, well, I, course- I, would, I would add to that from my perspective. The only reason I framed it that way is just and again, just again, from my perception, right, that it just seems obvious from what I can see, and I'm doing my best to try to remain objective, that it seems more pronounced right now in the West than anywhere else I'm seeing. But you're right. It's fair to point out it happens everywhere. And I really, I'm really glad that you point out the idea that we all do have our biases and we can't get past that. You know, you, you, no matter what you do, you have things that you've already decided are the truth and that influences what you write about as long as we're willing to stand back and be objective about that and include that and be honest about it. And that's the best you could do. Right. And that's, you know, the, the idea that you pretend no, you don't have a bias is the biggest bias of all, I argue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's why I started with that because, um, you know, someone might turn and look at what I'm saying now and go, well, you are biased uh, towards the plight of the Palestinian people. You, you support the Palestinians. And I say openly, of course I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I base that on something. It's not baseless. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's very obvious that that is my position personally. However, mm-hmm. I can report in a way which is truthful and honest and, and build arguments which make sense. Um, and I respect anyone that is able to build an honest argument. And that's the thing. With Western media, I feel like it's progressively got even worse because now this sense of fair play, uh, journalistic integrity, fact checking, all of this has gone out of the windows, uh, the window completely, in my opinion. Um, I mean, there's the case, the cases of these reports on Iran. And we know going back to uh, even the days of the Iraq war with the Mm -hmm. so-called weapons of mass destruction and these sorts of lies, which were told. Um, that these, uh, you know, stories were made up and and false reports were handed off by uh, intelligence sources uh, to mainstream newspapers and they would report upon them. But there was something in their reporting which was almost, let's say, a little bit more fair. Like, for instance, now we don't have anyone in the corporate mainstream space, including over in the United Kingdom, uh, the Guardian or the Independent, which actually properly do their job in most cases not in all cases there are some good pieces which come out investigative journalism i'm not saying that everything all the time sucks um but and of course there's their their biases but when we're looking at it it's just like these reports that come out have nothing to do with reality and they build upon these false narratives which they've already released which were not true um and continue to run with these stories and so you spoke about iran and what they're saying about Iran, I mean, it was just ridiculous uh, to the point where with the Iran story about uh, supposedly 15,000 people being executed, it was not just that. Uh, the, the, that story came out. We you expect things like this. But it's the fact that mainstream corporate trusted news outlets were willing to push this story to say that the parliament in Iran Ignoring that they even have a judicial system, the right. parliament was responsible for voting to execute people, something that we would have heard about and there'd be a lot on if it actually did occur. Um, right. And we know about beforehand uh, as well, assumedly. Uh, so it's something that is just utterly ridiculous. It, play, it plays on, our, on, on people's inherent I mean, bias in, in, in general, but really just the mis- inter- the mis the way it's misrepresented about what the entire Middle East is and how there it's all chaos and, you know. In, in it. 
entire group of people based on their on their religion, on their skin color and so on. Um, and but what, what's interesting to me is that this builds, as you pointed out, on a lie that they then build on top of and but use the lie as if. But I'll keep going in case we get you back. There we go. You knock that leg out of the propaganda of the very first story. Then none of it has any standing, but they just never look back. But before we get further into Iran, because I do want to let's just we'll start with that 15,000 protesters discussion. But let's go back really quickly to Iraq, like you were pointing out uh, in regard to the overlap there. So we know like during WMD's discussion, I mean, everybody should know by now that that was in, in the false story. Right. This was a lie. There was no evidence for it. And there was even plenty of examples showing you that they knew that while they were lying to us right now. The idea that they even at least pretended to have two. Changed. So just that that changed from at least Iraq to now. Why? One anonymous source is enough. Like, we'll just ignore the due diligence process. You know, what's changed in your mind? Well, I, I believe that in, in that way, uh, not a lot has changed. Uh, what has changed um, is that when it comes to reporting on these sort of stories, um, now there is not even a, 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 a single care for making the story even seem believable. Um, it's just about whatever headline you get out and, and, and throwing rhetoric at people and just trusting that they'll believe in the constant demonization of whatever government you're talking about or group mm-hmm. you're talking about. Right. Um, and, and for instance, in the case of uh, back in the day, it was Iraq. Um, and we're talking about how brutal the Iraqi uh, government is, uh, despite the fact that the U.S. government's the one that sold them the chemical weapons and then tried to blame chemical weapons attacks, which were committed by Saddam, on the Iranian side. Um, and that uh, the U.S. government as well basically gave the green light for Saddam's invasion of Kuwait anyway. Um, mm-hmm. We could go back into all of this, but at least back then, um, there were some outlets, let's say, in the mainstream who were trying to at least at least give you that veneer of respectability in terms mm-hmm. of their reporting, in terms of journalistic integrity. I feel like that has just completely gone away now. Um, and it's just full-fledged propaganda without any even need to try and justify it. So um, why, why is kind of the crux of the point here? Why do you think, and I know we're guessing, Right. I mean, we're, we're kind of trying to see, you know, read the tea leaves. Here, but why do you think it's just because it has happened quite fast? Right. I mean, just this. I mean, how do you go from a point where you act like it's absolutely paramount? Like you cannot all do that. Two sources need to be, you know, there's this game we play about the way we perceive the media and their process to just saying, well, this anonymous person said so. We can't even vet it. We can't prove it. And acting like that as standing and then to the point gets built upon. Right. Then that gets cited by other media outlets and it becomes this whole why? Like, why do you think they just so quickly shifted into maybe my point in the beginning, maybe exposing what they've always been, maybe just a shift of their, you know, what do you think? It it could come down to a few different things. This is an interesting question because obviously I don't have, you know, an insight or knowledge as to how this has uh, sort of played out. And and of course, there's always been problems with their reporting. Um, So it's not like they were amazing and now now they're terrible. Um, You know, they've always had uh, their propaganda and there's they've always been lying. But at at this point, um, I'd have to put it down to the change in terms of the way that we use the Internet. 
the way that uh, people view sources these days, uh, the fact that I suppose everything's moved from physical newspapers now to online um, and they're just trying to market things. And they know that to manipulate people, basically all you have to do is put out a headline. Um, all you have to do is make a claim and then it's out there. Um, and, and the allegation may stick or it may not stick. I mean, there is the case recently of the CNN report, um, which happened just before Iran played the United States um, in the FIFA World Cup based in Qatar. Um, and CNN released this report, which I, I wrote an article on uh, debunking it, essentially, mm-hmm. um, where they s- cited some security source. They didn't name who the security source was. But as you read through the article, it becomes more and more and more ridiculous to the point where they're saying, yes, the IRGC is openly threatening um, the families uh, the families of the Iranian national team players. Um, mm-hmm. And they then go on to say that was the number one story. That was the story. That's how they pegged it. And a number of tabloid newspapers over in uh, the United Kingdom picked up on it. But you'll see that, for instance, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Associated Press, uh, Reuters, who are probably some of the most trusted, more trusted, established uh, news outlets, especially Reuters and AP, didn't touch it. Because I think that they looked at it like I looked at it and Mm -hmm. went, this is so ludicrous that we cannot report this because it's going to come back on us if someone pulls this up. Um, and that's and, an interesting and, thing to state right there, because if that was actually what they perceived it as, that's a pretty incredible state. That, that's too ridiculous in our ridiculous reporting. So like that just goes so far above. And that's your kind of your point here is that this it's baseless. It just, yeah, it's completely baseless. Because if it was true, we're saying that the IRGC, without the permission of the Qatari government, Doha mm-hmm. has to invite them. If the IRGC, an official branch of the Iranian government, um, are, are in Qatar, they have to be invited. If they're not invited, they're there illegally. They're violating the sovereignty of Qatar. And Qatar, of course, houses the biggest U.S. base in the Middle East. Um, so uh, we're talking about a real international incident here that cnn is apparently uncovering Um, (laughs) and they're there not to monitor i don't know u.s forces there they're there to talk to the iranian national team who plays football to tell them not to protest apparently or something like that um which is just utterly ridiculous And, and that was the main peg of the story and then they just went into further detail they said that the coach was also spoke to by the IRGC they know apparently what was said in some of the meetings and they can quote some of the the the, uh, the things that the IRGC members were apparently saying to the Iranian national team players but they can't quote the meeting that apparently took place with the coach which happened separately according to this uh, the security source that CNN uh, cited um and uh, it's just like you're now saying that an international, I think he's from Spain. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Don't quote oh. me on that. The the coach for the Iranian mm-hmm. national team, but he's a foreign national. You're now yeah. saying that he's getting a talking to by the IRGC. That again is a, a major incident. Yeah. Um, no proof for it. Then on top of that, they go and say that back in Iran as well, the IRGC had fre- uh, had basically tried to promise them, or the Iranian government has tried to promise them uh, free vehicles. Um, like cars and stuff like this and gifts, basically, if they were to stay silent, um, which is a ridiculous claim again. And there's no basis for it because apparently the security source, which is, you know, apparently, you know, working and, and talking to CNN, um, it, it would have had to have been to, in Tehran as well to witness this. Right. So he's right. in two places. He's infiltrating Iran and then he's in Qatar 
seeing an incident and, and monitoring an incident of the violation of the sovereignty of Qatar, which you would think would be reported to Qatar um, and would cause a diplomatic row between Iran and Qatar. Of course, right. this has not happened. Um, and if the story was true, you would think that the United States government, which wants to use anything it can against Iran, would use this story and would right. take it very seriously. And they go a, a step uh, even uh, further than that as well. Um, and, and this is just the ridiculousness of it all. They can't try and claim as well. Now, the Iranian government is flying out pro-Iranian government uh, fans to be in the stadiums to show that uh, Iran has support, public support. And even if that's true, you have no uh, you, you have no evidence. But this is all in one article citing an unnamed security source. We don't even know the agency responsible for this. I mean, CNN is very close to the CIA. We know that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, we, but, we lost you there, Robert. There's the connection seems to be jumping in and out. Big surprise. But uh, <laughs> since I since we stopped there for a moment, I was just going to say before that it's so interesting. So all of these arguments, like, of course, are they could they be? Is it possible? Yes, it's wildly unlikely and almost seemingly provably not possible based on all the different geopolitical issues that would arise. Certainly anything's possible. But the main crux of the point is that there's no evidence, not just no proof. There's no evidence. Long-term kind of plan to... Just, well, we have clout we're an outlet, we'll state things, and you, our reputation should carry them. You know, that's what we... You know, that's just not how it's supposed to work. The problem is that now they've got anonymous sources and government insider, you know, and they just tell us things, which, by the way, over history has been proven to be, I argue, more often than not, at least inaccurate, right? And that's mm -hmm. what we see from the government. So what's interesting is they just continue to push these stories, and I think it's really a lot about training people to begin to just take at face value whatever outlet they've chosen to trust, you know, and that, that's this very problematic direction as we go into this, you know. But so the, the main point here is that this was just pushed based on some stated source that we never get to confirm. It, as you point out in the article, it's impossible. It's actually impossible to figure out one way or the other. So you're left to just basically go, if I trust CNN, I'm already going to agree with this, which you would have done anyway. If I don't like CNN, then I'm going to disagree with this, which you already would have done anyway. So all this does is cement the already preconceived opinions. I, I find that very interesting. What do you think about that? No, I think that's exactly what they've done. And I mean, it's just if you want to just see how far this goes, you look at the coverage of the Ukraine war um, mm -hmm. and it's a very similar thing. And, and we are heading into this new Cold War era now where anything goes. It's just about, you know, lying to your own population about what's going on. Um, and, you know, the, the reporting isn't even close to the truth. And it really resembles what's been happening with the Western reporting on Palestine for a very long time. I think it mirrors that. Because with Palestine, for instance, we're looking at now this is going to Iran and we're looking at uh, specifically Russia in the context of the Ukraine war. But in, in Palestine, what the Western media has done over the years has basically built this alternative narrative, this story. Um, and that's what it is, this story, which is neither representative of what the Israelis view the conflict or the Palestinians. And it's most certainly not this gray area in the middle, which uh, which somehow reflects the, the true reality. It's something 
from a parallel universe where basically their friends are the Israelis. They want to present the Israelis in a in a positive way. And in order to do that, they have to completely change what's happening on the ground in order to reflect a reality which would feed into Western liberalism and the, the ideals of Western liberalism, uh, at least in order to make Israel uh, and its, uh, I suppose, its goodness um digestible for people and, and to make people support Israel. Um, and, and that's the narrative that they carry with the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, I mean, so we see this transferred over. Uh, the Ukraine wars undoubtedly made things worse because you can just have outlets claim ridiculous things. Like, for instance, the New York Times about a month or so ago claimed that the Ukrainians suddenly gained uh, air artillery superiority to the Russians, um, which is just militarily oh, incorrect. Hold on, Robert. Of course, it paused right when you were making your point that they gained what? Go ahead and say it again. It cut out. The The New York Times basically claimed that uh, the Ukrainians had gained uh, superiority over mm. the Russians in terms of their artillery huh. uh, capabilities uh, in the air. Um, so it's just provably wrong militarily. Right. It's just right. not correct at all. And I, I checked it with some... Uh, uh, friends of mine, some sources of mine who know a lot more about what's going on there. Um, I'm not a military guy. I don't understand uh, munitions as much as some people, that, some contacts that I have or what's going on in Ukraine to the level that some of my contacts do. And I contacted them. I said, I sent them this report and I said, is this true? Like, is this actually what's happening? And they're like, this is ridiculous. And I got back a list of all different munitions, which Russia has, um, which the Ukrainians don't, which fires a lot. Uh, further, for instance, and that the Russians are firing something like 10 times more artillery well, pieces. I think since you, since you bring this up, I find it really interesting. I think the most interesting current point is that the the Iranian drones have seemingly flipped the whole thing over now where they just can't like even Zelensky was even like you could like see how he was frustrated on this video talking about how this was like. I think that's why they're trying to frame that as somehow like a terrorist act, despite how all of them are using the same drones. And it's like just because Iran provides equipment that therefore it's a terror. It's just such a silly frame. It's the same kind of framework we're talking about. But that the Iranian drones they're using seem to be turning the tide to a large degree. But then again, you could argue that was never really. It depends on how they're framing it, because it appears to me that Russia has had the, the upper hand in this entire process. And that's been shown numerous times where they kind of force their hand and they make a display and they're like, look, if we really wanted to, we could just take over all of Ukraine seemingly with pretty quick effort. Now, I don't know if I'm wrong about that or not, but it seems that that's what they present. But I think it's interesting now the Iranian drone aspect has completely turned all of this and there are they're still playing narratives like, oh, they're about to run out of ammunition. Oh, Putin is going to have a heart attack and die and all these just ridiculous narratives that come over the top. And maybe that's just to cover up the fact that they are actually losing this because it is a U.S. proxy war, no matter how you want to spin it. Uh, most certainly, definitely. And I mean, uh, that's something that they'll deny um, and take to their graves denying that it's a U.S. proxy war. But it's most certainly a NATO U.S. proxy war. And when we talk about NATO, we talk about the United States. Um, but uh, two points there. I mean, with the Iranian drones, um, there was a need, uh, I know, for the Russians to uh, to acquire uh, drones. Oh, hold on, and Robert. Hold on. You just... It, it... Seems like it's frozen there. Often on my show, I don't understand how this is even possible with the internet directly hardlined in. Can you hear me, Robert? 
Yeah, I can hear you. My God, I, this doesn't even cut out this much when I do my regular show. This is crazy. There's no, there's no reason based on everything. I, I, people always get mad at me when I rant about this every time the internet crash. But we're directly plugged into the hard line. We have business level internet. Everything based, as far as I can tell, is flying. And yet here we are dropping in and out every 30 seconds. Like It's crazy. And by the way, it, it, I don't even think it's on your end. My stream connection from StreamYard seems to be struggling right now. So all that being said, let's see if we can keep this going. <laughs> if you could pick up where you left off, I apologize. Uh, no problem. Yeah, I, I would just say in terms of how consequential the drone use has been, I can't speak to that in terms of I don't actually have, uh, you know, any information that we don't have on the public record. I'm not an expert in what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and, and by but, the way, that's fair. That, I'm just relaying what people have said. Same thing from the ground that are that are, you know, in that, you know, and again, they could be wrong. They could be misinformed. It's just kind of that's always how this works in a war zone. You're doing your best to. But that's how the corporate media fails to report it. Right. They're giving you what they claim are absolute facts. We're saying, well, this is what we can glean from the wartime information. You know, that's that's the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I know for a fact that they're difficult because I, I don't think through, you know, these conventional air, air, um, uh, air defense systems, you can fire, you can shoot down these drones. You have right, to do it with right. handheld munitions, uh, anti-air um, uh, like launchers um, uh, to shoot them down. And I think people have been machine gunning them down and all sorts of different things. Um, and, and there was a need, I know, uh, from sources and contacts of mine uh, for the Russians to uh, procure these uh, drones um, and procure, procure a munition of this type, which is relatively cheap um, mm -hmm. and which works at sort of a mid range um, as a munition. Um, and they've been very successful. Um, and obviously this helped Iran as well develop the drones along with the Russians. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, they, and I mean, the West went insane about this, but at the same time they're sending what, tens of billions every other week. Right. over to Ukraine. Um, and then there's the point at which you mentioned about the munitions and Russia running out of munitions. That's not going to happen. But the Ukrainian side most certainly are running out of munitions. And that's why there's been this freak out in Western nations to produce more munitions. Not only that, but they've depleted a lot of their stores. So now I, I believe NATO Stoltenberg was talking about um, uh, basically resupplying all of the NATO countries because they've used a lot of their munitions. They've just sent them all to Ukraine. So, you know, this sort of reporting happens very much in Ukraine. Um, and you see the reporting, you know, before Russians were all right. You know, they were always portrayed as the bad guys in movies mm -hmm. and TV shows and whatnot, right? The big bad Russians. But, and very much around the whole Russiagate thing, uh, this, you know, Russians became an enemy, um, especially for Democrats in, in the United States. But, in this recent conflict, the Russian people, Russian culture, Russian identity has been specifically targeted. And that yes. is where it get dangerous because they do a very similar thing with Iran, I, I would argue. When it comes to Iran, undermining its uh, – altogether, it having any sort of organic government. It just has to be a Western-style democracy that agrees with us or it's not legitimate. And that's right. what they're doing, delegitimating it. They're attacking mm -hmm. Iranian culture. They're attacking uh, Islamic uh, principles and, and in culture as well. Um, and attempting, and they're not doing this because they have some ideological disagreement. No, we're talking about Western nations who will fund an armed Al-Qaeda, Daesh, all right. of these crazy kooky tech theory groups in Syria or wherever else they want to use them. It's not about principles. It's about demonizing entire people and portraying them as a bunch of brutal, barbaric head choppers um, and this is really the new Orientalism. 
right, um, we right. want to demonize a people so then we can starve them because we can't just sanction them and deny them medicine and food hmm. without them being an awful people with an awful regime um, that that is beyond words. We can't even explain it. So we have to make up all these, quite frankly, BS stories uh, to try and justify why we're starving these people, why we're uh, destroying their economy, why we're uh, blocking them from selling their resources, why we are uh, wanting as well and advocating for not only, you know, uh, striking and killing Iranians outside of Iran, but why we might have to strike Iran directly as well. And so if you're going to do all of these things, if you're going to use violence and basically besiege a country like they've done to Iran, you have to build this narrative around them. And that's exactly what they did with Iraq. And subsequently, what happens is when they, these narratives start to get built, what they will do is they will attach like, for instance, if they're Muslims, let's talk about Islam and how bad Islam is. Um, and we're going to talk about how bad Muslims are. We're going to make you hate Muslims because right. we want to kill people in the leaderships in Muslim countries. So we have to make you demonize them and their people because there's always collateral damage. Right. No matter what you do, collateral damage. So if you're going to go in and destroy these governments, these groups, whatever that you, you oppose and oppose you, then you have to account for collateral damage. So how do you do that? And how do you justify that to your people? You demonize them and you take and sap the humanity out of them. Right. And that's what they're doing. Uh, and even when it comes to the Russians right now, you know, openly they'll say, yeah, it's justifiable to talk about killing Russian people, killing Russian people, not soldiers in the battlefield, people, right. Russian people, banning Russian people, banning Russian culture. This is, and, and this in of itself, it's like, this is how you start a, a war against a country. You need well, this sort of propaganda. And what's really, right. And what, what's really interesting is that this is exactly what they pretend they're trying to stop. It's so inherently contradictory and hypocritical. And so what you're talking about is dehumanizing people. And that, you make a great point about this in your recent couple articles, actually, the new Orientalism, the idea of how, Essentially, it's not just I mean, they try to frame it as race. Right. But when you can clearly see that it's 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 not just race, it's also ideology or rather mm -hmm. just the, the society. And that you can point out that there's examples of any number of skin colors that they just simply attack because of a certain perceived ideology or ideological problem for their agenda from the West. Right. And this is how it's been like your point out with Russia or different groups. It's it's insulting to pretend like they are not. I mean, it's not even it's. It's on the surface talking about kicking out Russian people or highlighting Russian teams or Iranian teams for that matter. Like to mm -hmm. act like that is the same thing as sanctioning the government. It's just inherently it's it's dishonest, it's, but it's obviously just a, a immoral act. And the people out there can see that. So I wonder what those that are allowing it to happen are. OK, I don't understand why that would be allowed. I guess my main point is that what they're ultimately doing is creating the exact thing that they're pretending they're trying to stop and possibly kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy right where they point at the same thing that they're i don't know i mean what how do you see this going forward i mean because art go ahead well when we look at this i mean like this dates back to philologists uh you know french german and british philologists uh in the 1700s and even before that and after that and you know we're talking about attaching when it comes to racism right and and, and constructing racism because there's obviously the most obvious forms of racism, which is somebody looking at someone, they're different to them. I hate you because you look like this, right? 
um, and, and you're different to me. There's that. And then there's the deeper forms of racism, which were used to justify colonialism and slavery. And mm -hmm. that had to go deep. And that went into the, the science, right? The science was, you know, even from, if you read Frantz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, um, uh, you'll see that he quotes, uh, for instance, uh, one of the leading figures who worked for the World Health Organization, who was talking about how people in North, uh, northern Africa, um, their frontal lobe uh, is is smaller and they're not capable of reason in the same way as as their uh, European uh, counterpart, uh, for instance, um, they're not uh, they're not able to feel empathy in the same way. They can't control their emotions. They get angry more often, and they have this pseudo scientific justifications for everything. So when it comes to culture as well, that's another thing: is that these people, their skin color was connected to their culture. Um, and so, yes, we look at a black person, black person is like this or a black person from, let's say, uh, Western Africa. They act like this stereotypically. This is how they act. And now they'll build this whole thing about how to combat people in Western Africa. Right. The thing is, if there is somebody that is of uh, another group, right, which is, uh, you know, a non-desirable then uh, that was willing to work with them, they'll accept them um, uh, to a certain degree. They might never be the same as you know, mm -hmm. the superior race back then, uh, right? You can never be the same. Even today, you know, th these racists uh, and the way that they think these elitist families and their stupid stuff with their bloodlines and everything, they'll never accept people fully. But if you, you know, pander to their ideology and their line and, you know, you're, you know, a helpful little worker and you're their mm -hmm. personal slave and you follow them around and say what they want, then they'll accept you. It's cool. You can be part of their Western uh elite if you want you can mm -hmm. be there as long as you do what you're told and you don't uh hold to any of the ideology which is originally fought by the colonizer or the oppressor to be of your people um and this happens with classism too obviously racism is a much bigger subject and the pseudoscience behind it obviously was developed um even more so um but this even happens with clash and assumptions of uh, what a certain class will do um, you'll right, see this right. very prevalent in, in the United Kingdom as well. Right. Um, and, and so with this, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, it's about demonizing people's cultures. And, and as long as we can make those people, it's all right if we have black and brown people in government, for instance. But don't you dare carry that ideology of the East. Don't yeah. carry that ideology of uh, the of Islam or uh, the Orient, right? Uh, you know, you need to have this uh, Occidental ideology and you can be part of us. You can be into right. it. So let's um, bring this back. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Let's read on. Go ahead. Uh, no, no. I was just going to finish off by saying, you know, it, it's the ideology and, and ideological supremacism. So the first thing they drop, they'll drop things if there's pushback against them. Like, obviously, there's a lot of pushback against racism and they'll drop, you know, the surface level stuff. So they'll drop to a certain extent, like uh, demonizing people so much because of skin color, mm -hmm. but really they still are racist <laughs> because right. they won't accept any other ideology to come in. Um, that, that is something that they will not accept. They won't reconcile with, they won't respect that ideology. And we see that for instance, when it comes to Qatar hosting the world cup, right. they will not allow a different ideology and they will stamp their superiority over the superiority of Western liberalism, or you can call it Judeo uh, Christian liberalism or whatever you want to name it at this point, which runs through uh, the West, 
um, as the predominant ideology, um, you have to stamp that over the other. And that's the thing that makes us better. Hmm. That makes us better because we, are, we have liberalism. We are liberal. We have progressed more than the rest of the world. They are still barbarians. And that's the, the, that is the way of thinking. And if you demonize a people like this mm-hmm. by stamping your culture over theirs, then this is just as strong as saying I'm, I'm white and I'm stamping my whiteness over black people. It's, it's a very similar thing in terms of, yes, we are superior because of our culture. And then we can kill you because you need to change to be like us. And if you're not like us, then you really aren't living. You're not part of the civilized world, right? right? Um, and that is just as dangerous as saying, yeah, black people are are inhuman and white people are the best, whatever, openly, right? Right. Um, it, it's just as bad because you can demonize the entirety of the Middle East, paint them with one brush and then say, we're going to exterminate their people. And it's all justifiable because they don't think like us. And obviously the color thing comes into this as well, but well, pre- predominantly it's the ideology thing that they, they will talk about. Right. And, and there, obviously it's, it's undeniable that there's, there's an element, if not the, the entire purpose being race oriented or rather just racism in the sense, whether it's ideological or skin color, the point is that it's there, but even just putting that aside in the point we're making now, like the important, cause I argue there's people in the corporate media that may not, perceive it that way even mm-hmm. though they're obviously engaging with it they they buy their own bs to a degree right that they think they're fighting the evil ideology that's suppressing the freedom of you know blah 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 whatever their arc narrative is but the point here is it's interesting is what they are doing to bring it was kind of what that point i was trying to get to before and i lost my train of thought is that it, the, the dehumanization right that where we come to the point to where historically you've seen as you beautifully laid out there that they've continued to find the people from a you know just take it from a governmental level or maybe larger an agenda that goes beyond governmental borders larger you know ruling factions of creating you know demonizing a certain group because of something they want to achieve and so they they execute this in a way that creates over the process of a month a year 10 years a a, a perception that turns them into not human right that they're mm-hmm. so bad and so evil and so barbaric that we that, that it's okay if we kill a few in the interest of what's right. You know, like that's the way this gets perceived and we continue to see this happen. And so they're creating the very racism and the very division and the very, you know, ideological wars that they pretend they're trying to stop with the great reset with everything they're doing, except they're exactly the culprits of what we're pointing at. It's, it's fascinating and also horrifying to a degree, you know, and we watch them do that right now about Iranians and so on. And it's, it is, I don't even know how to put they are actually creating what they're claiming they're trying to stop. And you can see this in everything we're doing. But again, the point is you're dehumanizing people, right? That's mm-hmm. what I think we try to do on a regular basis is stand up for people that don't have a voice. You know, this is the, to make it to a very small example, like bombing a country and then t- pointing at the people that are their family got murdered and saying they're the terrorist. You know, you, you're cre- that it, it normalizes the very idea. Well, uh, there's an example recently from in August when Israel went on a three-day bombing campaign targeting the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement in Gaza. Um, and in, um, when Israel targets a certain armed movement in Gaza, by the way, it will go after the people that support it as well. And for Islamic Jihad, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, that's the name of the movement, um, a lot of its supporters are the poorer masses, the the working poorer masses. I mean, there's not many people working there because there's no jobs, but the poorer people are their support base. And so they bombed poor people. That's who Mm. they went after. And there was a case at the end of the war, and this goes to what 
even Associated Press, which is held up as, you know, the gold standard in terms of Western media, did a story basically cherry picking quotes out of Palestinian uh, human rights organizations based in the Gaza Strip um, out of their reports to try and justify the Israeli military's claim that the majority of children killed during those free days of bombing were killed by Palestinian Islamic Jihad misfired rockets, which was completely and utterly false. And those reports, I went through them. I mean, the human rights organizations ended up, I think, uh, making them private or something at a certain point because I went one day and then the next day they weren't there. But when I went through them, these reports, it was clear that they cherry picked the reports um, and and not properly uh, looked into the claims. This is the Associated Press. And then one of the cases, which was perhaps the worst massacre, in my opinion, personally, and I have a personal connection to this as well, um, uh, and I investigated it and, uh, you know, got a friend of mine to go down there and film with the families, was when Israel struck in Jabalia refugee camp mm-hmm. um, and they struck a graveyard and they killed five children with a, a with. And I found out through my reporting and, and investigative work that it was a drone strike. The Israelis at first said it was a misfired Palestinian rocket. This was just taken. And, and, and the AP worked to justify this claim. This is how wrong and disgusting that their report was that they worked to justify and corroborate what Israel said. Mm-hmm. They, they, the Israeli military said that, yes, this is a misfired rocket and that the Israeli military didn't fire at this time. Now, what we had afterwards and the Israeli military eventually led it out to Haaretz News, um, it, which is probably the most reputable uh, paper uh, news outlet in, in uh, Occupy Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, so they, they let it out. They said, look, yeah, the, we did fire at this time. It looks like it was us to Haaretz and Haaretz reported that. But what I found out is that we got the shrapnel from the heads of the children, which had Hebrew writing on it. And the munition was actually studied and it came from a drone, which means that the Israelis directly looked at five children in a graveyard, which was open, right? And decided to fire a missile from a drone, which it's they, it's precise. They know what they're doing. It's not like right. an artillery piece. They can say, oh, you know, we missed, you know, the, the mark by a little bit and it went off course. No, there's no justification. But the Associated Press went to justify it. Reuters did a report as well. And the reason why I pull out Reuters and Associated Press is because they're supposed to be the most reputable news organizations, not only in the West, but in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where it's the go to when it comes to other news agencies. They'll go to Reuters and AP to get their stories for the day. That's what they do. Um, every newsroom does that. So when you can't trust these outlets and they're doing propaganda, it's just awful. And especially in a case like this. Oh, yeah. Afterwards, now it's like, oh, yeah, maybe we were wrong about that. But no apologies. Where's the apology from Reuters? Right. Where's the apology from New York Times? Where's the apology from AP? None, because they don't have any integrity. It's just garbage reporting and covering up for a, a state which is accused by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and its own human rights organization, B'Tselem, of being an apartheid regime, something we've right. known for a very long time. Um, so you're covering up for them. And that is the state of, of Western journalism and what it is. And the worst part of today. Absolutely, wholeheartedly agree. And the worst part about it is, it, it, and this is how it always goes, as you know, that, that that happens. And this happens with Ukraine seemingly every 30 seconds right now with the way the narrative goes, that they come out and they blatantly lie about it. The corporate media blatantly follows suit without any due diligence or vetting anything they've said, just, well, they said so, right? Then 
quietly, oh, it looks like you were right, and we actually did that. And then nobody follows up on that, right? So the court, the Western audience who just goes narrative headline to headline never sees that correction. So then what happens even further, as you know, which is this is an example of, let's say, the the raping children story from Ukraine, which was proven to be utterly false, complete whole cloth narrative. She even got fired for it. And Ukraine was forced to acknowledge it was a whole cloth story. But the point is, people didn't know that even writers who then a month later piggyback on that story and go this and then this story. And so people and the point we we're making before they build on a false story, even after it's been debunked because of how clearly people, even in the corporate media, aren't following up on the corrections of these stories because it doesn't even matter, it seems. And this is mm -hmm. the as you pointed out, this is the current state, the absolute lot. I mean, again, whether it was ever this way or I do or whether it was ever the positive way, I I question but where we're at a point now where seemingly not a single tenet of journalistic integrity matters at all, as long as it's in the interest of the narrative. And to finish, I think this is why I think this is the case. Now, I've brought this up many times. This is an article from Swiss Policy Research, and I think it very succinctly breaks down what they call the propaganda multiplier, which shows you, you know, basically White House intelligence, you know, which then dumps information into the global news agencies, which are predominantly, by and large, like 90-something. There are other ones, but these are the majority. Associated Press, French Press Agency, and Reuters, right? Mm -hmm. They, as you pointed out, then that's where most every other outlet goes to to get the rest of their information. And sometimes even mm -hmm. just blatantly just post exactly what they write, right? And that's how they oh, see yeah. this often, right? But I can tell you from working, sorry to disrupt, no, no, but I can ahead, tell you ahead. from working in newsrooms that, look, uh, if you're pulling up stories and I know people across all different uh, media outlets who've worked in newsrooms. And this is what you do in the morning. You go into AP or Reuters, AFP right. for some, uh, some might use roughly depending upon what agency you're from. Mm -hmm. And they just literally copy paste and change a few words for, and that's what goes on the teleprompter right. um, in the newsroom. And then for your stories that you're going to write, they'll do the same thing. They'll pull out this story. They'll change it around a little bit, but they'll basically use the story and, and multiply you know, the story from one of these outlets. So right. everything comes from these these outlets. That's where it originally comes from. And that's why you know, you'll see all those compilations of, I'm sure you've seen them, um, of mm -hmm. them, uh, of news channels, even local ones, national ones, international, all saying like the same thing. They'll repeat from a teleprompter. Today, Jerry died in such and such. And all of them say the exact same thing, basically, maybe with one or two words changed. Right. And then it like it goes out and it shows all of the I, I, there's many videos people have done to show that they say the exact same thing. And that's why, because this is where it comes from. And they just copy and paste. And that's all they do. And they don't look deeper in a newsroom. I don't expect them to look deeper because that's just what they do. But when it comes to you, you know, writing an article, doing an investigation, um, sourcing stuff, you know, like going primary source uh, to primary sources right. um, and, and pulling your story or if you have a specific correspondent who is, is talking about, uh, let's say, said conflict, Palestine, for instance, right? You, that, co that correspondent is supposed to know what they're talking about. Another problem with media today is that you don't have people that specialize in one field. What they'll do is you'll have a correspondent, let's say for Sky News, um, he goes to Hong Kong, then he's in uh, Korea, uh, South Korea, obviously. And then he goes to Japan and then he's over suddenly in, uh, uh, well, he'd be in West Jerusalem for these uh, news outlets uh, reporting on Israel-Palestine. And then they're over to Britain and then the United States. They might send him to Germany and then they're to some random 
country elsewhere. They might send them to an island country. I don't know. They'll, they'll send them to Senegal, maybe. They'll, they'll go anywhere, right? But they're never in one place. They go to that place. They don't speak the language. They don't understand the history. They don't understand the culture. And they have a fixer that tells them everything that they need to hear. And they just repeat whatever their fixer tells them. Right. And that's, that's how you get your news from your correspondents. They don't know what they're talking about. They right. don't well, know. People like Alison Morrow, I, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's doing great. She does a show on Rockfin and elsewhere. And she she started this beat by breaking away from the corporate media and basically saying, you know, here's why I realized that, you know, because all she was trying to do is bring a very basic, provable story that was, interestingly enough, before COVID about alternative health, essentially, and showing that and they just w- shut it down and said, no, you can't report that. She's like, well, it's true. I mean, here's the facts. Oh, can't report it. And then after that, just because she once brought a story together that they didn't like, they then had to check every story she ever did from that point forward. And then she very quickly realized, well, this is not accurate or truthful. It's just a narrative, and that's why she quit. The point is that she sees the she's talked about the same exact thing, right? Even still talking with people that work in the field, you know, the obvious reality that this is being passed through a lens, you know, a filter. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you still think what comes out of that is truthful. It's not the full picture. And I still argue even then it's not actually true in most cases. So back to this point here, I think what's obvious is that this is as exactly as it's framed a propaganda multiplier, especially since it comes from people who have admitted that they will give false information, maybe mixed with true information. We could, The CIA has been on the record many times saying that they do this through the media. The FBI has been caught for literally seeding their own narratives to the media, then pointing at the media story to justify a further investigation. Like, think about how ridiculous that is. You know, it's they're, they're creating a false narrative out of whole cloth and going, look, they reported it. Therefore, we can arrest this guy. You know, it's like, it's amazing. But so the point coming back to the reality is that this is, whether they're aware of it or not, the way that this flows, and we have people in the corporate media who aren't, as you point out, investigating. You know, Most of these places don't even have investigative journalists anymore. It's just mm-hmm. about dumping the narrative and following suit. And this has trained people out of the field who used to once think journalism was something else. And now I think with things like the Twitter files and the way this is all happening, they're literally trying to retrain people to engage with it just like this. And we just end up being the fourth rung right here, mm-hmm. right? Where we just go, oh, okay. Is that what the narrative is with no source material because it's stated and we have to trust that you have it back there somewhere we don't get to see? That's happening everywhere right now. Now, I'm actually holding out hope. I don't know if you want to comment on that about the whole Twitter thing maybe panning out the way we want it to. I'm not saying I know for sure, but it's not looking good thus far. But if you want to comment on that, go ahead. And I wanted to finish with the Smith-Mont Modernization Act. Um, I, I would just say that, you know, um, as long as we have people that are willing to try and I, look, when you're trying to search uh, and, and understand a certain topic, you you have to have experts. You have to have people to understand what they're talking about. You know, for me, I've stuck to the Middle East because this is what I report on. I specifically, you know, uh, report on and understand uh, Sham, the Levant, the best, specifically Israel, Palestine. And that's where my focus is. But, you know, I focus on the Middle East and I do that for a reason. I want to be somebody that is actually looking into this. I have mm. uh countless contacts there uh, in government positions, military positions, political parties, you name it. Um, I talk to just regular people on the ground to, to find out what's happening. And, and you have to be immersed in whatever you're reporting in order to do a, a proper job on it. Right. In a way, if you're going to be a correspondent and you're going to be somebody that specializes on this, you can't just sort of jump in and listen to a few propaganda outlets and go, yeah, hey, I can talk about this and I can talk about that. 
um, there has to be something like where you're actually going deeper into these issues. That's why I've, I've specifically focused on the Middle East, because I want to be that sort of journalist that does go into the detail, that does actually look at what's going on. And I talk to people every day because maybe because I'm not living there. Right. Uh, I'm not currently based in, in occupied Palestine. So I don't know. The mood might have changed in, in a city like Nablus, for instance, in the northern mm-hmm. West Bank. The, the mood might have changed. I need to talk to a friend there who's a journalist or somebody just living there who just, you know, like uh, they might work their land and talk to them. How are the people feeling? What are you seeing? What's being you know, said between people? Uh, you know, how bad was the raid last night? What was the what were the repercussions? And I talk in, to people and want to find out these things when we don't have journalists in the mainstream who are doing that. And there's very few, if not like I, I don't know many at all that are doing this. Um, there's a real problem and there's a gap in our knowledge. Um, and, and that's why I aspire to do that and, and try my best to, uh, you know, represent that point of view to the best of my ability. Um, and I think there's some people that are, are wanting to do that and trying to do that to the best of their ability. And normally you have to really seek them out. You know, I know some great journalists who are in Occupy Palestine doing an amazing job. Um, but, you know, they're not ultra famous people. You know, right. um, most people don't follow them in their work. It's normally, unfortunately, people with big following on social media or we have to do people like us. They have to do shows and, and put our faces out there for people to know us. Um, you know, our work doesn't get discovered and we don't get uh you know quoted and sourced all the time um so it, it there is a hope that things will get better um but at, for the moment in the western media in the mainstream at least um it looks to be going the opposite way um and it gets worse and worse i think the ukraine yeah. war situation has very much shown us that uh they don't care anymore they really don't care i would argue that and i agree with you but i would argue the media representation or lack there or the false representation gets worse and worse. But I argue the reason that it's happening is because it's getting better and better. And I think that you, your work specifically, and a lot of other people out there doing what you're doing, which by the way, as you pointed out, doesn't mean that we're always right. But the fact that you always put objectivity and the truth as best you can out front and do engage with the, you know, our own biases and the information in front of us is all that really matters, right? Doing your best to achieve that. But the point is that we are making a difference. You are making a difference. And the, and what we just, just the, the conversation around Israel has, as you pointed out in your work has dramatically changed rapidly just in the last year. I mean, it's powerful to see, like I, I jokingly say, but it's not really a joke that very, very recently, Palestine never existed and every single person there was a terrorist. And and people literally express that espouse espouse that idea. As stupid as that sounds right now, they literally would argue that. And yet now we can see that that's not the reality. Hopefully we always were smart enough to see through that at the very least. But you know, you've got human rights organizations are standing up and saying, "Look, this is what they are. You can't pretend it's not an apartheid state. They are an apartheid state." And Beth Selim goes farther and says they're a Jewish supremacy state. And you can prove that with exactly what they're saying, the Zionist regime, right? The point is that this is powerful and the work is making a difference. That's why it gets harder and harder because they're more desperately trying to stop. It's the cornered animal analogy. And I really do believe that. And I want to finish with this point here. And this is kind of going back to the why question. And this is genuinely, if I had to guess why I think this has changed and I think it escalated rapidly pre and then just post COVID-19. And I think we all saw the propaganda machine spin out of control because of that narrative and Ukraine and going forward, whatever, you know, why we can all guess at that. But 
Smith-Munt Modernization Act. If we all remember this, if the, for, first of all, the Smith-Munt Act, for those who don't know, was if I'm, I don't I remember the exact date when that was passed. I think it was 40 something. I, I forget. But it was about saying you can't propagandize the American people. Right. Even though provably they still did. The point was, at least legally on the record, they were like, you're not allowed to lie and and use propaganda in in this country. You can feel free to do it all around the world. They did both. Right. But the Smith Modernization Act, which I try to remember off the top of my head, I think it was the 2006 NDA, NDAA, if you remember, or 2013. Either way, look, read the article for yourself. It does. It does matter. I'm just trying to speak off the top of my head here. The, the the National Defense Authorization Act, which, by the way, the newer one is coming out this year. I think it already did, or it's about to. Where they added an amendment called the Smith Munt Modernization Act. As always, they love to make it sound like it's getting better. <laughs> We're modernizing the Smith Munt Act. Well, what they did was completely reverse it. Right. So they then said, "You're allowed to now propagandize the American people as long as it's in the interest of national security." which I'm sure you could laugh about and we could all make fun of how ridiculous that statement means, whatever they want it to be. But I want your thoughts on that to finish here in general. Like, I believe that's where this really began to change, where they allowed them to lie under the excuse of whatever they want to say. And then we started to see this very rapidly change, right? What do you think about that? And do you think you, you know, post COVID and where do you think it's going? And then do you think it'll get better? And so on, we can wrap up with this. Well, I think uh, we're in a stage now where, the only answer for these Western nations and that they're, you know, the elitists which control them um, is to swing back to sort of ultranationalism. Um, this, you know, model of liberal hegemony, some will call it, right, um, of, you know, installing these uh, so-called liberal democracies all over the world and doing it through brutal force. Um, ha- has Democracies, right? Not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just utterly ridiculous, uh, the framing of it, right? And it's laughable. But this model of trying to make the world look like us, basically, mm-hmm. that's what it is. Right. It's like everywhere must look like us, everywhere must have the same values, everywhere must have the same government, approximately. And we can do that by force. We can kill as many as we want, you know, uh, with the war on terror or whatever else we want to do to get to that. I think now, because of the current predicament that the United States finds itself in competing with China, it's confronted with a new reality. And this, especially for the European countries right now, you know, they're freezing um, and the mm. economies are crashing and things are getting terrible. And it's obvious that China is going to overcome the United States as the number one economic power. And it may be the number one power in the world, uh, you know, in the future, which controls most of the world, right? Or at least is, you know, the international, the new international community will be China and whoever it chooses its allies. And just really Um, quickly to clarify, that's not suggesting one way or the other that we want that or not, just simply that that is what seems to be happening. I hate that we have to make those kind of qualifications, but it's important to say that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I, I mean... For me, it's uh, this is just objectively what's happening. Exactly. Um, I can't really make a judgment on what uh, you know the world sort of headed by China as the number one global power will look like. At least it, it will be the economic power. I mean, the United States mm-hmm. is always going to be militarily superior to China, at least for the foreseeable future. But they understand that you know if they're going to continue to compete, if the United States is going to continue to compete, they have to sway over to nationalism again. Everyone has to go back to this position where you know the right and the left are very much at polar opposites. People are politicized to a certain degree. They're not, you know 
told to actually go that bit further and look at the system for what it actually is. But right and left, we want people on right and left at extreme points of view and not right. real true like positions, like ideological positions on right and left. Like, for instance, the left doesn't really exist, in my opinion, at the moment. There is no left. There's just these liberal people that are obsessed with identity politics. And then mm-hmm. there's the right wing which are obsessed with identity politics, but they're hardline nationalists. And mm-hmm. that's the thing that makes them, you know, pits them, I suppose, on the right, um, is their hardline nationalism following sort of conservative values to a, a certain degree on some mm-hmm. points. Um, and, and so that's what we have. The identity war, right, is is created, in my opinion, has been created in order to, for the nationalism to come back and, and, and take control again and for us to have more authoritarian governments which will have a nationalist flavor more support and perhaps can again try and compete because you have to completely amend your economic model now this is just when i'm saying this by the way this is just the way i read the situation right who might be completely wrong i'm not saying this is a fact by the way um this is the way i read it um that you have to uh, restructure your economies to take on uh china to compete to continue Right. Regardless of whether these people might be friends or whatnot, and they might be part of some of the same conferences and whatnot, and they might have relations and different levels or what um, that does to the lives of the citizens themselves. uh, Sorry, say that again. I just simply said or what it does to the lives of the citizens themselves, like whether that derails their lives or changes what they're at, you know, like what we're seeing with with the, you know, Putin's gas hike or, you know, what they're destroying people's lives and just blaming it on Putin. Like the point with China that Whitney Webb has made very clear that Eric Schmidt spoke about, like the idea of the legacy systems, saying we need to do away with these things so we can compete with China. But the question is, well, wait a minute. All those things you're pointing at are things that most people in the UK and the United States value and want and don't want to go away. But they're like, mm-hmm. we don't care about that. You know, well, your, your wants and needs are relevant when it comes to our larger agenda. We'll just frame it for you so it's digestible. You know, bad guy China trying to steal your freedom, you know, whatever it is. And that becomes the reality. It's, it's, it's very whatever transparent. the big business interests decide is going to be you know right. uh, the direction right mm-hmm. all the all the workers the workers don't matter they're just there to work they're there to do their fit they're not there to think they're not there to you know have any real agency uh they might be there for us to herd to a certain party to vote in our meaningless elections um uh, but uh you know and, and stoke us up and make us do stupid things and fight each other that's what we're here for um, but in terms of them, it's, it's all what suits their business interests. And, you know, business comes first, making money comes first and, and, you know, maintaining power comes first. And so they understand they have to change the economic models and they're doing it. They're doing it very rapidly. And I think it looks like they're sacrificing Europe to a certain uh, extent at this point. Right. So. Uh, we're going to see a very different world. And part of this is, yeah, you have to be pretty authoritarian and, and you're going to head to hardline nationalism. We see that in Europe. People are gravitating towards it fully fledged. And part of that is you need a reaction to something. And this mm-hmm. is this is my theory. You need a reaction to something in order to swing to this hardline nationalism for people to be put in this position where they're supporting this authoritarianism is that like a nationalistic or authoritarianism is you need an enemy to fight. And the enemy seems to be uh, the the woke people, right? The people who are obsessed with identity politics on the on the liberal liberal left end of the spectrum, right? Um, and, and these people are the enemy, and these people are attacking. And if you look, the majority of people in the working masses don't align with this sort of over the top identity politics view of the world. They don't, right? And so they're going to 
find this stuff problematic to a certain degree. So they have to amplify these voices who take the identity politics to an extreme level and then make a war out of nothing basically mm -hmm. make an identity politics war out of nothing let's blow up the issue of whether it be one person saying that this book shouldn't be on the shelves or whatever and and let's let's go to that person who doesn't want that book on the shelves or who wants to teach a certain lesson to some students and let's get an organization to give a shit ton of money to these people so that mm -hmm. it can blow up their cause and a bunch of people can rally behind them and then they can be fighting the other guys it's like the whole issue of I believe the Koch brothers fund, obviously, the right-wing media that they fund, but they also fund vice news. Typically, yes. Historically, you know, whether we're talking about the funding of two sides of wars, right? This is, you know, this is an interesting point to finish on right here. And I think what historically we've seen a lot of discussion. I mean, you could point out people like uh, Charlie Char uh, uh, Charlie Manson discussing the race war and the coming race war there's been and that's such an interesting topic by the way and the overlaps with the epstein network and what that really was i argue in the history and epstein was the newer version we can get into that at a different time but the interesting point about this is that concept has been floated for a long time the race war and the coming race war but what's interesting is we've overlapped the conversation today that it seems that they're kind of one in the same with an ideological war or race war it's the same kind of game being played mm -hmm. Now, we're just maybe today watching the next version of this where we are still seeing that same, you know, engineered race war, but it's just simply an ideological war. And it's output or outcome is the same thing, I would argue. And it's what we're describing here is that they're creating this false divide. And whether that's as simple as just divide and conquer, keeping us at odds so we don't realize who the real culprit is or there's some larger outcome here. I do think it overlaps with the direction they're trying to achieve. Either way, I find that very interesting. And what do you think about that in regard to the, the identity politics versus the classic prediction of like a coming race war and what that might be used to do? For, I would say, obviously, the idea of suppression of speech, right? I mean, it's very scary. Um, I, I think specifically this is the way I see it um, in, in the United States because when you talk about the issue of you know a cultural war, then who are going to be the people targeted if it gets violent? Well, the people who appear in a different way are going to, that's physically, if people are fighting on the ground, they'll target based upon appearance. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you're going to get minority communities who are targeted. Um, and that would be a horrific situation if it were to, uh, it were to go down. And the more the fans that you're flaming the fans of this, the closer you get to a situation where something horrific like that happens. Right. Um, and, Nobody wants to see that happen. I mean, there are psychopaths who want to see that happen, but nobody mm -hmm. wants people going out and going, oh, here's a black community. Here's a Jewish community, an Asian community and, and shooting at people. That is the worst case scenario. But if this keeps going to that point and people are pushed to that point, it's ultimately going to result in that people getting guns and shooting people. Um, and in my opinion, I don't think they care about that even happening. Like it doesn't I, I agree. I, I, agree. Don't, I don't think they care if, if that even happens as long as they get to the end goal. And if that happens, then they can use it more again. So more media attention. We can make more money off of covering more stories about this horrible stuff, which which the media are stoking. So um, what's, what's interesting, though, is yeah. so we're talking about the, the, the race part of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is it. So how do you see this in the ideological form? Right. Because I argue where this is going. I mean, obviously, race is playing a factor. I mean, that's just that's just the card that's played left and right, which obviously there are racists that does happen. But the way it's politically being used is completely in, 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 in dishonest. But ultimately, the ideological part. So let's say like the woke 
whatever that means, versus the nationalist. Like the way you kind of frame that, right? So how does that play out in your mind? Because we're not talking about race necessarily anymore. We're talking about, you know, like the anti-vaxxers versus the, you know, like that's how this is being framed now. So how do you see that going forward if this is the new direction, like the new version of this this race war? Well, this man of like this thing like of the sort of like people call them the woke, you know, mm. the, the the liberals, right? These mm. sort of left-leaning liberals, you would say they're pretty authoritarian, but left-leaning yeah. <laughs> liberals, right? Um, versus like the nationalist conservative types, right? And, and that sort of war, anything fits into that. And it just basically depends upon what the issue is and what the leadership of either group choose to gravitate towards. Both right. of them are authoritarian. Um, There's the, the problem. Right there. That's the important part, I think. The, the problem becomes when, like, for instance, when it comes to issues of race, the, the right wingers, not all of them, I'm not saying all of them, because there's a lot of working class people who, for instance, support right wing causes and then the Republican Party or whatever, who don't think in this way. But there is that issue of, for instance, Donald Trump played upon it. Let's talk about Muslims. Let's talk about uh, Hispanics. Let's talk about black people, whatever you want. Right. And he'd go and he didn't have to say it directly, but he knew what to say to tap into it. Like mm -hmm. he knew what to mm -hmm. say. We're going to put Hillary behind jail and uh, right. behind bars. And we're going to go after, you know, these pedophile rings. And we're going to anything that he needed to say to think that like if he was thinking this demographic, believe in this, mm -hmm. this demographic, they think the, the government is screwing them on this. They don't like Hispanics. They don't like black people. They don't like LGBT. Oh, they love LGBT. We're going to go to each community and we're going to talk in a different way to them to get them right. on board. Right. So they use everything. And the thing is, when we talk about these people on what many would frame as on the right and left, right, I, I'd say basically these these liberals are, are not really very left wing at all. Their ideology is not left wing uh, in, in the slightest. But in terms of the way that they that they behave and we're framing this as the right and left, the way these people think is that they don't have a, a strong ideological basis for anything they believe. So any issue can become the issue of the day. Right. Any issue, whether it be COVID on uh, opposing sides, uh, issues of racism on opposing sides, issue of uh, uh, Muslims and, uh, and uh, Muslim uh, migration, whatever, whatever you choose. Um, they will be on opposing sides and, uh, you know, they will fit into these camps and they'll attack each other based upon it. Right. Um, and you can play them off against it. Like the abortion thing we just saw as well, um, mm -hmm. getting them on board because like, it's not, these people don't have majority of them don't have like core tenets of their beliefs. Um, and that's why they're easy to manipulate because mm -hmm. somebody that's very strongly committed to their ideology or a group um, and that has very strong principles and moral standards uh, and positions on different issues doesn't they don't change they're very consistent and they're very predictable these people are not predictable they will be changed like for instance we had uh these uh like the liberal types right the liberal types would say that um in in the case of the canadian truckers not one nazi that is a respectable point of view but you have to be consistent you have mm -hmm. to be consistent you can't then go to ukraine and say Oh, there's not that many Nazis. <laughs> right. You, if you're going to say not one Nazi, then not one Nazi. I respect right. that position. But if you if you say that, then like you have to be. But they're not consistent. And that's right. the thing. They're not consistent. Um, and they can manipulate anything they want in order to get the desired result from people. And this is, again, this is all me just uh, giving my point of view now. I, I'm not saying yeah. that. 
this is factually correct and everyone needs to see the world uh, the way the uh, the world the way i see it um but this is how i see them using this and the whole idea of the culture war um in order to create you know a new west a new america Mm. um whilst they're doing all these things and people are fighting each other over these different issues and aligning themselves with a certain camp um they're simultaneously completely changing the economic system and flipping it on his head right they're changing it they're becoming a lot more authoritarian in many ways they're screwing the working masses in many ways they're putting a chokehold over people so it's it's interesting to see the way it develops i mean it's it looks very grim but at the same time this is one thing i think is that um going forward in the future this because the economic situation is getting very bad People are really suffering. A lot of people, you know, are at home. They don't have jobs even. They're kicked out of their jobs. People are actually thinking a lot more. People are thinking about fighting for their rights a lot more. We are seeing workers organize more, uh, more union efforts. Um, We're seeing people come together on an unprecedented level in many regards. So this could birth a new movement. We don't know. We need to anticipate how this may be manipulated because either of these two sides will come in and try and manipulate it, and it's guaranteed they'll do that. Um, but there is some hope that we might see new movements form, and we might see, uh, you know, working people, the, the masses, actually come out and uh, fight for their rights again. We might see new movements, um, and hopefully it doesn't take a, a country uh, like, or for instance, the, the likes of the Soviet Union to back it financially. Uh, hopefully that comes organically from people and they don't need somewhere to to fund their movements and to inspire them. And that this can come organically. For instance, when it comes to a lot of worker struggles and groups that were in the West before, they came and they took money from the Soviets, right? They got the mm-hmm. Soviet money, the Soviet backing. They got the backing from uh, uh, Mao, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so, of course... When the money dries up and the diplomatic support dries up and the movement is overcrowded by people who are, you know, taking a lot of money and are mm-hmm. invested in something uh, from, you know, another country, then the movement falls as well, unfortunately, a lot of the time. Right. But that's not always the case. Right. Well, you touched on something very interesting there, you know, the, the, the I guess, willingness to completely upend your entire foundation of beliefs because – you know, like like this left to right kind of concept, like people are going, oh, I'm leaving the left and I'm going to the right because X, Y and Z. And I just like how what is, it shows you so inherently that so they've been trained to think that these are just wishy washy things that I can pick every day based on what I think that day. Like if you had tenets of, of beliefs and that is what you stood by when you first said, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, those don't ever change because somebody else suddenly starts saying something different. The idea mm-hmm. that you can just be like, I'm going to change this way, when you can point out very clearly that the tenets on one versus the other are not the same, then you're showing that you never really held any real beliefs, that you're being used. Or fly, or or I'll put it there, maybe you suddenly discovered that the other side is more valid to you. Either way, it's really ridiculous to see how this is playing out. And that speaks to the larger point you're making, that we're, people are being trained to think that way, that these things mm-hmm. aren't really – you don't have integrity and principles and that kind of foundation – you just wake up and emotionally respond to whatever in front of you and then vomit it all over the internet, right? Ultimately what's happening today. But I think it's important to see that. And I think, and lastly, that, you know, what we're, what you were describing and what we're talking about, I mean, it's not that we think necessarily that this is the reality, as you were saying, but this is what they're trying to present it as that there is this woke versus nationalism battle happening, you know, and there are people that fall into those categories, but I Mm -hmm. argue that it's mostly people that can at least question 
what they're being presented with. That's my hope at the very least, that we have more of a majority today than ever kind of just put, you know, at least going, I don't know about that. And that's why they're so coming over the top so aggressively and pushing us back. Right. So these conversations need to continue to be had. And I appreciate you joining me today to talk about just the collapse of the corporate media ultimately and how how embarrassing it is that they're you know putting up their paywalls and being subsidized by the government and you know and people are very clearly seeing through them it's this this dumpster fire that they've become that's why i'm going to end with this clip that you kind of referenced as we go as we wrap here about the the sinclair threat to our democracy kind of wrap-up clip that shows you they've always been this way to a degree so Mm -hmm. any final thoughts you have for us robert any you know predictions where it's going you know what do you think will happen hopefully positive (laughs) in terms in terms of the media the the mainstream corporate media i don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon but i see a lot of potential i mean my area of expertise and, and i focus on is the middle east i see a lot of potentially very uh, positive developments there. The younger generation is definitely changing the way everyone looks at everything. They're coming mm-hmm. out strong. Um, and I, I think there's real hope in actually this younger generation inside the Middle East at large, but especially in, in Occupy Palestine um, and what they're going to create. Um, so that that is a place where I can say I see a lot of hope. And I, I also do see some hope uh, over here as well for uh, sort of individuals and a lot of people um, and, and new movements starting and and there is a glimpse of hope um but Mm -hmm. in in terms of the the corporate media um i mean i'd be truly surprised if they start doing a good job overnight um i mean i might pleasantly be surprised if if they start doing that but i I doubt it um yeah and I, i thank you for letting me on here i mean i went wildly off course with talking about my, my favorite war and all of this stuff. Um, but uh, that's what I, I, I love when these things end up just being organic and we get into a conversation and we just end up going where, you know, where you're passionate. I mean, your, your passion is obvious, Robert. And I think that's, what's so important is that people, you know, there's so many people out there just going through the motions, as you pointed out, going from city to city to city, just regurgitating what's being printed out. You know, that's not what you're doing here. You know, you you care about this. And as as we pointed out, that in in some way may have uh, influence on what you write about. But we're clear about that. Right. And the point is that we do our best to be objective and seek the truth at all costs. And 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 you're passionate about it. And you can't take that. You know, so I, I appreciate that. And I think so, too, to the Palestinian people and anybody out there fighting who don't get pointed at, especially today. And I, too, hope that the corporate media gets better. But I I, I think of that classic quote, I'm probably going to paraphrase it or make, mess it up. The idea that, you know, you it's impossible to get a person to believe something that their paycheck depends on them not believing. Right. And I think that's exactly where they ultimately are today. So I appreciate you being here, brother. And uh, any, any last word? Give us your social media and anything else people can check you out on. I mean, I, I post on Twitter. I put the occasional video up on TikTok for some reason. Normally <laughs> making fun of something, it gets taken down quickly. Um, uh, yeah, I have uh, Twitter. I post some of the articles on there, or at least you go to my likes. I, I like all the articles. Occasionally I post an update about Palestine and stuff like this. I've mm-hmm. not actually been that present on social media. I've just been writing. I've been uh, in a research stage for a book. Uh, at the moment. So I've been buried in books and research. Um, I recently wrote an investigative piece as well for uh, Mint Press, which was on funding from the United States going to extremist Mm -hmm. Temple Mount groups um, and the the attack on Al-Aqsa. And I write, obviously, (laughs) you're going to find my stuff on T-Lab and you're going to find yeah, like uh, on a multitude of different outlets, uh, they'll be, I'm always writing, writing, I'm always writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, Twitter, I suppose, is the place 
where I'm on most frequently. I suppose. Ah, screw, screw Twitter. Go to the last American Vagabond. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that's it. Th- thank you for being here today, brother. And uh, keep up the thank outstanding you. work. You'll continue to see it on this platform. And as always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about the trouble and the irresponsible one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media Unfortunately, some members of the media use their platforms to push their own personal bias and agenda to control exactly what people think. And this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 This is extremely dangerous to our democracy.